Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Canaroons podcast. This is volume 11, issue 507, and today we are finally dipping our toe into the murky waters uh, that darkness has infected or taken over or possessed or something. Uh, We'll find out uh, and talk about the original PS2 Kingdom Hearts. But fear not, I am not diving into the darkness alone. With me are three, count them three, brilliant specks of light. We have Brian Edwards. I'm channeling my inner Billy Zane for this recording today, Leah. I am happy to be here, and I hope that none of us succumb to darkness. I hope so, too. Joshua Garrity. I am coming to this recording with my heart intact. (laughs) You have not been split yet. And Ryan Jow. I have just 11 words to say. Hello. (laughs) Okay. (laughs) Excellent. Is that the is that the Phil joke the uh, the little Hercules yeah. guy? Yeah. Okay. Yep. Yes, yeah. yes, it is. <laughs> and we spent, uh, or if you are me and and Brian, you spent a lot of time in the Coliseum and still have not finished it. So we'll uh, we'll get there. But first of all, if you have not somehow heard or uh, have much knowledge about Kingdom Hearts, what is it? Well, that is quite the question that we are going to spend a lot of time answering. But in brief, it is a Squaresoft Disney crossover third-person action RPG that leads both original characters and familiar faces alike through versions of many different Disney worlds on their way to save the world from the darkness. Darkness is a word you will hear a lot in Kingdom Hearts because that's uh, that's one of the main themes. You know, you have good versus evil in a lot of games. Here it's uh, largely darkness versus light. And uh, we'll we'll talk a lot about what that means in this episode and uh, fingers crossed in some upcoming ones as well. So uh, this game was published and developed by Squaresoft. This was pre the Square Enix merger, uh, only by about a year, though. So the the development and the publishing took place, of course, prior to this merger uh, when it was just Squaresoft and The later entries then would have fallen under the Square Enix banner, but also um, Disney Interactive has been involved with many of the um, kind of remasters and re-releases. And of course, given that there are Disney characters quite firmly entrenched in the Kingdom Hearts lore and gameplay, uh, they've been pretty closely involved as well. The director of the first entry in the series is Tetsuya Nomura, who also did the bulk of the character designs. And uh, if you know things about JRPGs, particularly in the kind of late 90s, early 2000s, you've probably heard the name Tetsuya Nomura, a uh, very stalwart uh, addition to the uh, member of the Square Enix and Square Soft stables. Try saying that five times fast. And uh, someone who has had a pretty significant influence on namely the Final Fantasy titles um, in in that kind of particular period. So uh, you probably will recognize some of the designs. As we mentioned, there are some uh, Final Fantasy characters, not only new kind of uh, Final Fantasy adjacent characters, but uh, ones that you might recognize if you've played the prior games involved. So uh, Nomura had quite a big hand in that as well. Uh, Producer is uh, Shinji Hashimoto and co-produced by Yoshinori Kitase. Both of them also pretty pretty prominent within Square's catalog, uh, particularly of that time. And uh, the composer is Yoko Shimomura, who, if you uh, were a fan of our currently on 
extended hiatus uh, Sound of Play podcast, you have probably heard Yoko Shimomura's work. You've probably heard her work, even if you haven't listened to the uh, the Sound of Play podcast, because she is extremely prolific, uh, has done a lot of things that we will uh, probably speak about when we talk about the music a little bit more in depth later, but just wanted to uh, mention that here. The other kind of standout of the music is the theme tune, which is Simple and Clean, uh, which is sung by Hikaru Utada, who is a, uh, a Japanese um, kind of pop singer, pop and enka, I believe, singer, uh, who actually did the both Japanese and English versions of the theme song, which has now been involved in most, if not all, of the Kingdom Hearts games in some capacity. So you are probably going to recognize that as well if you have had anything to do with the series at any kind of point along the way. Development for this, um, I I cut this down a little bit, believe it or not, because there's a lot of history. Yeah, Kingdom Hearts is notorious for just having a very simple, clean-cut development history. <laughs> you know, you no. can tell because of the theme song. Yeah. Yes, <laughs> it's their it's their uh, not only their anthem but also their motto is is keep it simple, keep it clean. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I, what what I'm going to go through here is kind of an abbreviated history. But if you are interested in kind of how this came to be, I really do recommend kind of looking it up. There's a lot of information out there uh, about how Kingdom Hearts as a series and just as a primary game happened, uh, because you wouldn't expect something as big as Disney to kind of be trusted to someone like Square Enix. And uh, we'll probably touch on this a little bit more later. But if this had been a project that came about today, I wonder if it would have happened, um, just given how protective we know Disney to be of their properties currently. Uh, It seems like something that um, maybe they were already in a little bit too deep with uh, by the time Kingdom Hearts 3 rolled around. But the initial idea for Kingdom Hearts began with a discussion between Shinji Hashimoto and Hironobu Sakaguchi about Super Mario 64. They're planning to make a game with freedom of movement in three dimensions like Super Mario 64, because remember, this would not have really been the case for the most part in a lot of Square's titles up to this point. Uh, They lamented that only characters as popular as Disney's could rival a Mario game. Tetsuya Nomura, overhearing their conversation, volunteered to lead the project, and the two producers agreed to let him direct. So, so far, we've only got Square in there, but then a chance meeting between Hashimoto and a Disney executive in an elevator. Square and Disney, having previously worked in the same building in Japan, allowed Hashimoto to pitch the idea directly to Disney. Nomura struck down a number of proposals from Disney in order to pursue his own concept, featuring an original character not based on a Disney property. The production team consisted of over 100 members from both Square and Disney Interactive. Uh, The game began development in February 2000 and originally focused more on the gameplay with a simple story to appeal to Disney's target age range. After executive producer Hironobu Sakaguchi told director Tetsuya Nomura that the game would be a failure if it did not aim for the same level as the Final Fantasy series, a kind of common thread that uh, if you pay attention to those uh, those kinds of stories, and and I imagine a a significant portion of our audience probably does, Square's pretty... uh, known for being pretty strict on sales numbers, so this is not really surprising. Uh, But this was the point at which Nomura began to develop the story further. So when choosing Disney worlds to include in the game, Nomura and his team tried to pick worlds that had distinctively different looks. They also tried to take into account worlds with Disney characters that would be interesting. 
Thanks to support from Disney's then-president and current chairman and chief executive, Bob Iger, the team had few restrictions on which worlds they could use from the Disney franchises. However, they tried to remain within each character's boundaries set by their respective Disney films. So, uh, yeah, this is this is kind of surprising to me. It kind of sounds like Square went to Disney and said, hey, we have this idea. What do you think? And Disney said, yeah, OK, cool. Sounds good. And that was sort of it. Um, I, I think I actually would like to uh, go back for a second and ask you guys what you think about that. Would this happen if it were a proposal brought to Disney today by Square Enix or anybody else? There's absolutely no chance that yeah. this would happen now. I, I, I think Kingdom Hearts' continued existence is entirely due to how successful this first game ended up being. That it's mm. it's a train that you can't you know stop stop rolling once it got going. Mm-hmm. But like, given the absolute control Disney exerts now over its IP and over its franchises, and how absolutely off the rails the story in Kingdom Hearts ends up going, uh, maybe not so much in this this entry, but certainly in in two and the a thousand games that came out before free came out <laughs> uh like i i can't I, I, like what disney executives are going to sign off on organization 13 i i just can't see that happening so yeah i think i think it's pretty wild that this this ended up existing you know even as we look at the most recent entry uh kingdom hearts 3 as of the time of recording i guess the most recent mainline numbered entry in the series they have gotten a lot, I'd say, safer with the way that they handle Disney properties. Um, there's less of the... I mean, you go back to this first game, like especially the way that some of the worlds are depicted. You're thinking of like Alice in Wonderland and, um, you know, these these... It, there's a lot of kind of creative liberties taken with these worlds that the characters live in that almost kind of like inevitably builds new kind of lore and canon around them. Whereas Kingdom Hearts 3, like you are almost without exception, kind of interrupting them in the middle of their story, you know, in a very, you know, meticulously recreated version of their world. There are some like original stories that kind of continue on the stories of the um, of the movies, but it, it all feels very, it, it feels kind of like repackaged to such an extent that like they mm-hmm. recreate entire scenes from the movie almost shot for shot in a way that yeah. feels kind of <laughs> unnecessary, but like it, like you y- you can feel that the grip uh, starting to tighten a little bit, even though like this series is already in the in the very good graces of Disney. We do have some correspondence here uh, talking about Disney. Uh, Mr. Exolite from the forum says the Disney factor is also key ha, to making the narrative click. That's his ha, not mine. Having villains, including the true final one who are defined by simply mwahaha darkness, is exactly the amount of nuance a story about light, <laughs> darkness, and friendship can support. And the Disney villains helmed by Maleficent are a perfect fit here. Characters from the Disney side of the equation have the most relevance they will ever have in the series, as the villain cabal drives the princess kidnappings and the corruption of Riku. You feel like what happens in the Disney worlds actually matters, like the plot and character relationships are making actual progress along the way. It is a mostly Disney-focused story held together with a light amount of JRPG trope glue rather than the other way around. For my money, it's the only time the series got this balance right. 
Because for me, the draw here is absolutely the Disney of it all, specifically the classic 2D Disney of yesteryear. It's certainly this factor that allowed me to convince my very non-gamer and extremely non-RPG gamer wife to play and even beat the game. Because ultimately, Kingdom Hearts is a game where you and your friends Donald and Goofy can beat up Jafar and Oogie Boogie and Satan from Fantasia in the same game <laughs> before taking on a monstrous JRPG end boss, and that contains its own undeniable charm. To use their own terminology, the original Kingdom Hearts is one of my most dearly beloved of games, largely because it is the most simple and clean in the series. <laughs> well done. That was, that, that was a, a nice... Nice little introduction in what we're getting into here. I thought this was an interesting tidbit as well. In a June 2013 interview, Nomura stated the name of the game, Kingdom Hearts, was inspired by Disney theme parks, particularly Animal Kingdom, which had recently opened when development on the game began. However, Nomura could not secure the IP as just Kingdom. Later on, when the development team came, began to think about, think about hearts as a core part of the story, it was decided to combine the two to form the title Kingdom Hearts. So there you go. That's anybody who says, why is it called Kingdom Hearts? That's that's the uh, the canonical answer. And it's been released a lot of times. The original release was uh, on the PS2 in March 2002 in Japan, September 2002 in North America and November 2002 in the EU. PS3 version uh, called Kingdom Hearts 1.5 Remix came out in 2013. PS4 uh, has kind of the same version uh, repackaged again as Kingdom Hearts HD 1.5 plus 2.5 Remix in 2017. And that same version uh, is also included in Kingdom Hearts The Story So Far and Kingdom Hearts All in One Package, um, which are... You know, just different combinations of that version of the game plus other features. Uh, the digital, I think it's digital only version of uh, Kingdom Hearts One came out on uh, came out on the Xbox One in February 2020, on the PC in March 2021, and just recently on uh, the Switch, February 10th, 2022, under the name Kingdom Hearts Integrum Masterpiece Bundle Pack for Cloud, not Cloud the guy with the sword, which is important when you consider what this game includes. <laughs> Thank you. I, I'm here all week. Uh, so, uh, yes, there, and that's honestly, I've missed some stuff in there. I'm absolutely sure. But those are kind of the big this is all pretty much the same game. There are some additions uh, that and, and changes made mostly in just the presentation uh, resolution and uh, kind of the, the quality of the graphical scenes between most of them. The only time that there was a major content change would have been in the remix version uh, from PS2 to PS3 that also includes some things of uh, Japan's final mix version. So there's some extra bosses. There's some uh, kind of tweaks to the gameplay here and there. But largely, this is the same game. It's just been repackaged and remixed and uh, re-upped multiple times in the past 20 years, which is how long Kingdom Hearts has been out. If you didn't catch that, tw March 2002. So uh, once this game, once this podcast is really 20 years old this podcast is that's 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 a lot almost uh, old enough to drink almost in, yeah. it would be in other countries just not in yeah US. in my country kingdom hearts yeah. is already wasted but <laughs> yes kingdom hearts, uh, kingdom hearts is an alcoholic in uh in the uk but, uh, not here quite yet at least not legally on its initial release this is another place where i found it very difficult to find original review scores uh but the general kind of range seemed to be about the same uh, metacritic has it at an 85 eurogamer at an 8 out of 10 ign at a 9 out of 10 GameSpot at an 8.5 2, Game Informer at a 95, and Famitsu with a 36 out of 40. And as of 2006, the original game and the Final Mix version had sold 6 million copies on the PS2 worldwide. 
talked a lot about what the game has uh, has done up until its release uh, and up until it made it into our hands. But I want to uh, see, as we do, what everybody's history with the game is. So, uh, Josh, I want to start with you. Um, I'm going to guess that you did not play this when it came out because you would have been 10? Uh, a little bit older. Uh, 12. Okay. I would have oh, been 12. Oh, oh okay. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> All right. But yes, do, do you have a history? I, I mean, that I, I can definitely say that there are 12-year-olds who would be interested in playing <laughs> Kingdom Hearts now and then, but I, I, I don't know if you were one of those. Um, I, so I, I didn't play it at release. I, I played it a couple of years uh, a couple of years later, um, I think I was a, I think fourteen, fifteen, when I played it, and I never, I never got that far in the original. Um, I uh, playing it this time out um, to completion. The area I, the la- the last area I got to where I actually had kid memories of was the Tarzan area. Everything mm-hmm. after that was completely fresh for me. So yeah, a very limited experience with the original PS2 release, mainly because, uh, speaking honestly, I, I bounced off of the the control scheme um, and the camera system as well. In this um, remix version that you can get on on most H- HD consoles, you can map the camera to the right stick. But in the original PS2 version, you had to use the bumpers um, at the back of the PS2 controller, which just drove me up the wall. I have so the funny thing is though I have played and completed Kingdom Hearts 2 at least twice so never <laughs> finished the first one but for some reason the sequel grabbed me but um I I've never completed any other Kingdom Hearts game uh it was just two I've only completed all two 13 of them or however yeah, many. All, there's a lot I don't remember uh, a billion that exist so I I felt like it, the biggest you know the biggest mark of shame in that you know having not played any other entry in that in that franchise was the first one because out of all of them it's it was still quite critically well regarded a lot of people in you know my age group still talk positively about it so it was one of those things where one day one day I'll I'll play it and having this finally be on the Canaan schedule was the excuse I needed to to push through to the end so yeah, I played through the so I already owned it on PS3. I I thought it might be on Game Pass or something so I could play it on a slightly more modern device, but I couldn't it, it wasn't available and I'd have to shell out a lot of money uh to to get the um the more uh recent version of it. So I played through on the PS3 and I played through on the recommended difficulty setting. So yeah. Uh Ryan, how about you? Yeah, I don't I don't know when I first played it uh it was back on playstation 2 my brother picked it up and uh, we kind of played it together you know kind of taking turns on the same save file as uh as we used to do sometimes uh i don't know whether it would have been like lunch year or whether it would have been a year or two following or something but I, i do have a you know that memory of playing it through on the playstation 2 most recently i've replayed a bit of kingdom hearts on the pc package which i picked up on the epic game store which is uh the only launcher where it is available as of the time of recording um i haven't installed any mods or anything although i've seen some wonderful mods for kingdom hearts 3 and i'm looking forward to that it still plays just fine it still looks surprisingly great on pc and um i 
I think I'm going to have to skip uh, Chain of Memories this time around and go straight to Kingdom Hearts 2. Otherwise, I know it's never going to happen. And uh, I should make it happen. You could at some probably point. just watch a, an explainer video yeah. for, for Chain of Memories. <laughs> it's, uh, well, I mean, there we'll, are some we'll very there. vital story bits in that. <laughs> oh, but, yes, uh, absolutely. Gameplay That's wise, the thing I don't think about the series is that, like, everything has important story <laughs> in it. There aren't really any just throwaway games completely, they all have some weird thing that's going to come up two games later and make and, and absolutely not the way no that, sense like important story works in like star wars expanded universe where it's like <laughs> somebody will pop up and you'll be like oh who's that and then you'll realize there's like a long wikipedia entry about but like no fundamentally like the way that like quantum physics work in the universe mm-hmm. level of fundamental <laughs> it's quite the series <laughs> all right Pro- brian you and i have a little bit of a shared history we with do. Uh, with kingdom hearts but um do. why don't you tell us a little bit about your your personal history as well so yeah i think i i think i told this to you just the other night leah but the first time i ever played kingdom hearts was at a like an electronics boutique um which was a, a video game store in my region um that kind of turned into a game stop situation but I went there. The only reason I was there is because they had a demo of Wind Waker in the store, and I really wanted to see that in motion because um, I think that game came out in December of the year that Kingdom Hearts came out, 2002, I believe. Um, so anyway, so me and my, some buddies from college, I was a sophomore in college, went to this video game store to see Wind Waker in motion because that's the type of next level nerds we were and still are. And they had a Kia set up with a PS2 that was playing Kingdom Hearts. And um, I had heard about it a little bit and I picked it. I like was kind of playing through. It was that Destiny Island race between him and Riku. Um, that was the sec- uh, the segment that was on display. And so I was goofing around with it. I'm like, this is kind of neat. And then I saw the box and I was like, yeah, this seems like it might be my alley. And I didn't know that it was actually out then. Um, so I spent money that I definitely didn't have at the time um, and bought Kingdom Hearts at that video game store, went back to my college dorm room and essentially skipped school for the next week and a half and just played Kingdom Hearts. I played it through to completion, and if I'm being honest, I've probably played it to completion. I have no idea about the actual amount of times, at least a half dozen times or more over the years, maybe more. I'm not sure. I've started a lot more than that, that's for sure. But yeah, I've just kind of come back to it over the course of the years because I was a big Final Fantasy fan, and obviously, you know, growing up in America in the, you know, the 90s and stuff that Disney was, you know, shoved down your throat at every opportunity. So um, had a lot of nostalgia for that. And most recently, um, I did not complete the game, but I co-hosted a stream on Twitch um, called Keyblade Party, where one Leah Haydu uh, played through Kingdom Hearts and I kind of played color commentary on that. Um, and then I I downloaded it again, just fired it up just to get hands on with the controls and things, just to remember the remember the floatiness and how it feels at my fingertips before this recording. So, yeah, a um, lot of experience and time spent with Kingdom Hearts over the years. This was one of the reasons that I wanted to get a PS2, uh, which I got, I guess, kind of late, all things considered. But um, yeah, I I can remember seeing very early uh, impressions of Kingdom Hearts and thinking, oh, God, are they really just going to dump Disney characters into this game? Like, this looks stupid. I like Final Fantasy. This looks like kitty stuff. And, um, you know, I, I was that guy. I was that guy. And I am very glad that I'm no longer that guy um, because I was truly delighted by Kingdom Hearts when I finally got my hands on it. And um, much like Brian, I have played it numerous times over the years. I, I 
I find joy in the convoluted nature of the plot. Uh, it, it all feels very anime to me, which is something else that I have found a deep abiding appreciation for later on in, uh, in my life here. Uh, and uh, yes, I my latest playthrough uh, was just finished this this uh, past Friday. So two days ago, as of recording uh, uh, in the Keyblade Party stream that uh, Brian and I, we, it was what, 13, 13 episodes? I think, yeah, it, I think it was 13. Being? Yeah, something right yeah, around um, right around 27 hours, I think it was the yeah. final clock. And that that was the uh, PS4 version playing on a PS5. Um, and I, I definitely recommend that uh, that you go seek out uh, our uh, our stream archives on YouTube if you're uh, if you're so inclined. I think they're very funny because I did a lot of horrible things with that gummy ship that uh, we'll, <laughs> we'll talk about a little bit more very later. True. But uh, yes, Kingdom Hearts for me has has long been kind of a comfort game. And I, as as Brian also mentioned, I have started it definitely more times than I have completed it because there are a couple of areas, especially early on in the game, that are kind of tough to get a flow going. Um, but uh, yes, overall, I I'm very excited that we are finally doing this on the Cameron's podcast. We've been asking for permission to do this for a very long time, <laughs> and uh, turns out 20 year anniversary is a pretty good excuse. Uh, so this is your spoiler alert. Uh, I don't really know what to say about spoilers in this because everything kind of means something. It's a little wild to think about some of the later things that come back. I think we're going to try, or at least I, I, I'm intending for us to try, to kind of keep future games out of the discussion. Yeah. But as I mentioned before, it is tough to do that at some places. So if something slips through, I do apologize. Um, but I don't there there will definitely not be anything major. Um, so if you are intending to try and play along with the show, as of now there are no additional Kingdom Hearts games on the schedule, but I I think I think that might be something that could potentially happen. So here's here's hoping. Uh, but yes, if you want to play along with the show or if you just want to do a playthrough along of your own and you haven't before, uh, please don't worry about it. We are going to do our best to make sure that uh, all of the things that surprised us also surprise you. Uh, but with that said, I would like to start off our chat about the story of Kingdom Hearts with a Patreon piece of correspondence from Pecan Pie, who says, I'm coming to this game with no nostalgia, having just played it last month on original hardware and have no history with the series. I found it a mediocre experience, mainly buoyed by the Disney IP that it doesn't fumble. I wasn't too frustrated by any of the actions or mechanics. They just lacked any weight or satisfaction to perform. It wasn't until the second Riku fight that I really had to focus on the combat mechanics, and that ended up being my favorite fight. Overall, it has that feel that other JRPGs of this era that have tried to include more action mechanics. It feels clunky, less polished, and in my mind, I cut it some slack because it is an RPG and not an actual platformer or action game. I will say the most satisfying part is having all those colorful balls explode out of an enemy on the final hit. The story does its job of moving us to new Disney locations, but lacks any interest beyond that. The three characters of Sora, Riku, and Kairi have no real memorable character traits or arcs, but luckily the Disney characters bring all their charm to make up for it. The villains in particular are well utilized, with Jafar, Ursula, and Captain Hook all being memorable and well-voiced. I'm a Final Fantasy fan, but the inclusion of those characters didn't do much for me compared to the Disney ones. And I think those character models look worse than the originals, like cheap knockoffs, but I can imagine in 2002 it was fun to see Cloud on a PS2. And DeMonth from the forum says the simple roots right before this game decided to dive off a hill into literary chaos. And then again, when it decided to ignore the chance to get out with some dignity and do a triple flip into the hellhole after Kingdom Hearts 2. <laughs> but we'll get there when we get there. 
For now, as much as this game probably has the worst platforming possible and it feels rather slow and clumsy in hindsight, I think I enjoy it. Still wowed, the end cutscene can basically look as flawless in 2022 as it did 20 years ago. Also, I think this literally is the only time Sora's even implied to have some sort of actual mother in his life. Gotta wonder where she went. I do think uh, having, you know, most of my history with the series being uh, Kingdom Hearts 2, it was really interesting to go back to this one and and realize how much of the heavy lifting the actual Disney villains do in this plot. Like Mm. they are the driving force for the majority of the experience until the uh, like very, very last minute kind of villain switcheroo that happens um, in the, the final moments of this game. But yeah, it was, it was actually great having uh, Pecan Pie mentioned Jafar, Ursa and Captain Hook, but Maleficent like, and a really yeah. good, a good impression of that original performance of mm-hmm. Maleficent in this game, kind of leading the show. Because, the, f- frankly, a lot of these characters, a lot of these villains are more memorable and are more appealing than, I'm, I'm really sorry, the majority of Final Fantasy villains. Um, mm. Like, th- there are a few standouts. I I know Kefka fans. I know Sephiroth fans. Please don't put, put down your pitchforks. But I think that the vast majority of Final Fantasy villains don't have this characterful animation and yeah. you know unique uh, voice quirks that really identify them in the way that these villains do and and I think it it just it benefits the game hugely I've got other problems with the game that we'll get onto but this p- specific point that Pecan Pie raises yeah I, I think it's a huge benefit these these villains are leading the show it's kind of neat at the beginning of the game that I just replayed again this morning um just to get the controls down uh that like that has that kind of that round table scene where it's just kind of foreshadowing all the worlds you're going to go to. It's all the villains kind of talking about Sora and the Keyblade. And it's just when he leaves Traverse Town to go out uh, for the first time with Donald and Goofy. And you get to kind of see like, you know, the the who's who of villains you're going to be fighting throughout the game. And it was really neat because it kept prodding you forward like, you know, oh, well, I know I haven't gotten to Halloween Town yet because I saw Oogie Boogie at the beginning. And, and, and Maleficent is always that, that kind of that puppet master behind the scenes. And and much like you said, Josh, as big of a Final Fantasy fan as I am, like none of these villains from the Disney movies like really turn into anything other than themselves because there's no reason to. They already have that character, that backstory. Their motivations are already kind of set as opposed to like a uh, Final Fantasy VIII, for example, where this is the bad the sorceress is the bad person, but oh no, wait, now it's actually Ultimicia and wait, no, there's now the entire world is turning into a demon that has like, you know, seven heads and you're actually fighting God. That's not really God. You know, like it's like you don't Kingdom Hearts gets there. Don't get me wrong, <laughs> but but it's but it's with the yes. it's with the Final Fantasy or the the square that it's technically not Final Fantasy. It's right. the uh, it's the the kind of original characters that get like, I mean, yes, you do fight a giant demon ship at the end of this game. Yeah. But it's not like a giant demon ship that came out of Ursula or something. Right, Ursula's exactly. scary enough on her own. Yeah. yeah so yeah. like I, it, that really does. Uh, and again, just reinforcing what Pecan Pie said, it just and, and it's nice to already have the context as a player, because if you'd seen those movies or at least were familiar with the characters, you kind of you didn't have to really tell a backstory for why Captain Hook was Captain Hook. He's just Captain Hook. You know what I mean? Like it's it's that that is kind of nice to have your villains already established because it, it can be the core of that uh, motivating factor going forward. Huh? 
So we start out uh, before Maleficent, before any of this, uh, we start out on Destiny Islands, which is where Sora's presumed family is. We we don't actually meet them. We just I think we hear like one line. Doesn't Sora's mother like call out for him to have dinner or something? But this is where we kind of find out where the story is going. Uh, we have some kids who are very um, active and imagination filled and adventurous and for some reason, they also have child versions of a lot of Final Fantasy X mm. characters that show up in in the uh, in the beaches and everything. I, I I don't think we ever actually see an adult on this island, which is um, mildly concerning, uh, I, I guess. Uh, but uh, I mean, everybody seems to be doing okay until the darkness shows up, and uh, we are introduced to concepts like darkness kind of a capital D type of darkness or a, a, an italicized darkness, not just the absence of light, but the absence of capital L light. These things called the Heartless and also a Keyblade, which is just what it sounds like. It's a great big key that Sora drags around that serves multiple purposes. The Keyblade can serve as a weapon, of course, but it also can seal keyholes. And this is not just your standard... I need to get into my apartment. Where is my keychain keyholes? <laughs> These are more um, metaphorical keyholes, uh, I, I would say. Well, actually, that's not even accurate because they are literal keyholes that show up. They just are not really um, locking something mechanically. I, I think that's where the, the metaphor the comes fabric in. fabric of reality that they're, they're controlling. Exactly. So uh, uh, we are taken to... A kind of nondescript castle. I don't. I don't know that the castle is ever given a name. It might just be Disney Castle, um, but it is where King Mickey is uh, the uh, the ruler and has his uh, loyal subjects, Donald and Goofy, who live there and presumably are kind of his his knights, guards, protectors, whatever. They're not very good at it because he leaves the castle and they don't even notice. Uh, and also we have Minnie and Daisy, who are kind of the rulers as he's gone. Uh, but the game from that end starts out with... Mickey is missing. He is the king. He has gone to fight the darkness and he has not taken anyone with him. He leaves a note with uh, with Pluto, actually, who that tells Donald and Goofy to go out, find the key. And uh, that's pretty much all the direction that they are given. Somehow they just kind of run into Sora after Sora is blown off the island by a giant darkness storm. Uh, I, I don't know that that there's ever really a, a decent explanation as to why they just kind of, in fact, I think they literally just fall on top of Sora and say, Hey, you've, you've got a key. This is probably the right guy. Right. Um, so I don't know whether that is fate or capital D destiny or what exactly that's intended to be. But uh, now anyway, we have a manner in which we have a motivation. We have a uh, a way that our three main heroes have met up. So it's time to start traveling to Disney World's, uh, and not Disney World the theme park, but Disney World's with an S, like Wonderland and Olympus Coliseum. What I want to ask you guys is a couple of things. First of all, do you at this point have any kind of investment in the Disney part of this story, of this setup? 
And also, after that, we'll uh, we'll start looking at some worlds and uh, see what you think about any of the individual ones that I've got listed here. Is it uh, are are there favorites? Are there ones that you really didn't like? Uh, and what uh, what about them makes you think that? Uh, start with Ryan. The Disney aspect of this game was really kind of the main selling point for me and my brother when we played it uh, originally back in the day, and for. Everyone that I knew growing up who was a big Kingdom Hearts fan, it started because they were a huge Disney fan before that. You, you know, we're, we're, we're a lot more kind of immersed in metaverse ideas nowadays that everyone is trying to create these kind of like intergenerational multi-property you know, Fortnite and Ready Player One and Smash Brothers and all these, you know, universes collide type of you know we recently got two spider-man movies that play in this exact same kind of uh field of kind of mixing and matching various ip together that that do and don't play nicely all the time and uh that's the thing that i found like most interesting about about the fiction of kingdom hearts like i i can kind of care less about the organization 13 and all of the like hearts and darkness kind kind of stuff like you know whatever but like just the idea that there is this kind of interconnected like series of planets in which all mm-hmm. of these movies had taken place on and then Mickey is kind of the king the ruler of this of this kind of universe of of different Disney planets and the planets have varying levels of knowledge or complete ignorance of the existence of the others even though they still seem to be a part of the same kingdom they might not even know that they have a king in a way and like i'm i'm not a fan of mickey being given political roles like it's something that comes up time and time again throughout disney like mickey mouse to me is kind of like he's a good character because he's the everyman and his strongest mm-hmm. roles are when he's in an everyman position. And the fact that like Disney over the years has, you know, kind of made him like a, uh, made him the king and made him the mayor of Toontown and kind of a sorcerer supreme that is, co- uh, that is fighting the dragons. All, like that's like, I understand that from like a mascot perspective, but like the way that Nintendo is as uh, kind of similarly handed handled mario but like i feel like a lot more effectively where like mario's ostensibly love interest is the princess but mario never takes any interest in any of the kind of political aspects of running the mushroom kingdom like he's always just away doing other types of tasks and that's kind of what i prefer for mickey rather than him being in a castle and being surrounded by guards and like that doesn't make as much sense to me, but like the the aspect of it that I really connect with is that like all of these kingdoms are not homogenized in any way, mm-hmm. you know, which you often see with these kind of like metaverse projects is that like Fortnite will kind of blend everything into the Fortnite art style and everything plays like a Fortnite character. Whereas like if you go to all these different planets, the rules that dictated their original films like still apply everything is just like wildly different you know there's different laws of physics there's different kind of ways in which the people react and you know going to halloween town or going to the world of tron and future games and all this like there's some really wild divergence in here and they really lean into the divergent nature and the the 
the um, diversity of these worlds. And just like, I, I would be interested in a, almost like a kingdom at peace version of the kingdom Hearts story, where it's just like, how does Mickey oversee and facilitate trade between worlds as different as like pirates you of the caribbean the and winnie the pooh you know? <laughs> like it, it's it's fascinating but like they they do such a good job of like making everything feel like it in some way belongs together mm-hmm. but still like preserving each property's kind of essential essential flavor and then mm. throwing in final fantasy for <laughs> no reason at all like there's such like a such a um such a hearty stew that's being brewed here. Like I can't even imagine like the the balancing act that's in place. They uh they do have um kind of similar feels to most of it, but it's you're right. It's um there are m- mostly minor cosmetic differences, but some of the gameplay differences in particular I'm thinking um we kind of mentioned Atlantica and Neverland where you have not only 3D movement on just a a flat plane, you have 3D movement just in the space because in Atlantica you are a mer person uh and you know i think goofy's a turtle and and donald <laughs> is half octopus and you know it's and in in uh neverland you eventually gain the ability to fly so you are quite literally just have all of this open space and you can kind of go anywhere and that's ambitious in a way and i would argue that it doesn't always work as well as it should but at the same time i'm really glad that they tried doing something like that because i i just have all of them be you are this exact same character in another new world and you know that's that's kind of the case for some of these worlds especially the early ones where you are more kind of your standard character model without any real alterations but um it's it's nice that you they stick with visually uh for sure they stick with kind of how you would expect these worlds to look yeah i i i completely agree with that it's uh a fascinating way to deal with these kinds of things and may i don't know maybe the reason that they have mickey as the king is just that he's not tied to any one of these specific worlds which i i mean it's it, in the end, I, I guess it doesn't really matter that why why it's Mickey, but we do see you don't actually meet Mickey as a character until the very end of the game. He's apparently absurdly powerful, which is a weird thing to think about Mickey Mouse. But uh, yeah. yeah, he uh, they, they actually do back that up. Uh, the reason why he's the king, uh, I, I guess, kind of. Um, so, uh, yeah, and, and you see the same thing. kind of thing in uh, microcosm with uh, Pete as kind of a recurring mm-hmm. bad guy throughout the series and the way that he kind of plays off of the more serious minded Maleficent and the the more kind of doom and gloom villains. And then they kind of have to string along Pete. But like, it's kind of like the diversity of the universe is kind of a strength rather than being like a yeah. major hindrance. But I also love the way that they kind of experiment with form when navigating the worlds like Thousand Acre Woods is is like you can walk through the world but then you can also traverse like the page that the 
storybook is written on to like move to different parts of the world like that's really i don't know it's so clever yeah i think um i I agree with your assessment of mickey completely ryan because like my my ideal mickey is when he's playing bob cratchit you know what i mean like literally the everyman and and mickey's uh, christmas carol yeah exactly yeah i i do that's the way i kind of think of him so putting him in that kind of like all-powerful king whatever role is is strange a little bit because it also makes him feel a bit detached mm-hmm. you know from the humanity and or whatever you the 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 kind of emotions of it all but um i think what you explained about the worlds and what you were just talking about leah with the uh, moving in the spaces is really mostly made evident by the world hollow bastion because when you get to hollow bastion you've been to all these different worlds you even look different they turn sora into a goth and halloween town and you're like running around and you're like doing all this stuff but then when you get to hollow bastion which is just kind of like serves as kind of maleficent's base of operations where kingdom the portal to kingdom hearts is located all that stuff that area just falls flat because you're just kind of in a place you don't recognize from a movie they throw beast at you, so they give you something there to try to tie it to the Disney stuff. But it's just when you're put in a wholly original space within the uh, the universe of Kingdom Hearts, I just don't I don't find myself attached to any of it. And and that level in particular was just kind of like platforming and maze like and in its structure and not necessarily difficult, but more just kind of throwing the more annoying things about this game at you kind of in rapid succession, as opposed to the other worlds where even if you get to an area like, say, Neverland, for example, where you're in these tight corridors with a camber system that is not designed to handle tight indoor spaces. It is some of those things can be frustrating, but you're you're on Captain Hook's ship like you, you, there's like justification for maybe the annoyances that always is a little bit harder to swallow for me personally when you're not in a specifically designed or referential Disney mm-hmm. zone. So like that's why like when I think back on the game, yeah, Atlantica has some super annoying navigational things and and deep jungle with like the vines like the, some of that stuff is like really frustrating and kind of its design but you kind of give it a pass because like if you fall off one of those vines oh you fall back down to the camp where jane is waiting you know like it's you just kind of are already in an environment that you're both comfortable with and excited to be at just like to experience that space so yeah, so the the Disney worlds always end up being the strongest for me, not necessarily because I think that the gameplay or anything is significantly better. It's just I have more enjoyment to tie to the physical space than, say, when I'm just like going back to Traverse Town for the 11th time, you know, and it just like and just, you know, seeing Leon swiping his sword in the sewers for some reason, like like uh, that doesn't connect to me in the same way as say the first time you roll up to the Coliseum and mm. you know, it just, it, things are, it, it doesn't marry the original stuff with the referential stuff as well as I think it possibly could. I mean, in this first game, I think that the world design is kind of the, like in some way, the weakest aspect of it. Like, I think there's so much like really wonderful, really wonderful set dressing and a lot of really wonderful kind of mm. play with the aesthetics of the different movies and, I love Halloween Town. I love the even the the Coliseum, just kind of the way that it's built and the way that everything kind of looks and animates. The characters look unbelievable, especially for a PlayStation Two game. Like the Disney characters, how well they translated to you know PlayStation Two level polygons. How smooth everything looks. The the texture work, the way that the characters 
animate and um you know the kind of like bending and squashing and stretching on the on the character models that were like that stuff is still hard to get that right by modern standards and the fact that like they were able to mm-hmm. get the characters looking that good right off the bat is unbelievable but the worlds is really kind of where where it kind of falls down like i i think the first world that I don't know if they railroad you there immediately or whether you're given a choice and this is the one with the lower star difficulty rating and so like the uh Alice in Wonderland world like I think the the room with the door where you're kind of doing all the the shrinking down like Alice did is like that's fine but like once you get into the actual Alice in Wonderland world like that section's just dreadful and the fact that like it looks like a sound stage because there are painted walls that literally box you in it's just like this Mm -hmm. is not wonder this it looks like a miniature golf course that's alice in wonderland themed like it's just horrible (laughs) and like but like you know have to kind of like give them a little bit of elbow room because you know it's difficult what they're attempting to do but um i think the world design especially is something that they grow more confident in like throughout the series yeah, I, I something that uh, Ryan, you said really struck a chord with me about the Alice in Wonderland level, um, because I that that has always put me off. It, it They're all just kind of boxes, right? Like all of mm-hmm. the levels are. But most of them disguise it a lot better than Alice in Wonderland's literally right <laughs> angles at the, uh, the the backdrops. Like they didn't even try to have a skybox. They just have a literal box and um it that 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 has always bothered me some and and put me off a little bit on that particular level and also the fact that it's not it's not as engaging as i would have hoped uh in a lot of places but um i think that i i don't know i i really like halloween town um but it doesn't do a ton uh, in the way of mechanics mm-hmm. that that I love, I, I do like some of the boss fights in Halloween Town. Uh, you fight Oogie Boogie a couple of times in a couple of different uh, forms, which is pretty neat. Uh, he's a spooky dude for sure, and um, yeah, it, it it's almost except for Halloween Town. I think the aesthetic is almost always the opposite of the gameplay in terms of how much I enjoy it like i really like the fact that you can be a mermaid or a squid or whatever in atlantica but man the gameplay just sucks in that level i really don't like having to deal with being at multiple levels and sometimes you can lock onto something and and kind of get up to there but sometimes you don't have enough room to do that so you're just getting hit from above or below by these enemies that don't want to come to your level and it yeah i i found that really frustrating um kind of the same thing with neverland like i i enjoy once you get out of the, the the clock tower set piece is pretty cool but inside that's another one that's really bad about just being a box those corridors are so tiny and so horribly working with the uh with the camera as it is that um yeah i i had some issues with those but uh i mean overall i love what they tried to do i just feel Mm. like maybe it's not quite there at this stage did anyone else find that the the bosses associated with these areas regardless of what the star rating for difficulty was uh, listed as like veered wildly from way too easy to extremely hard like like all like all the time like going from ursula 
in Atlantica, who like the the final form of Ursula, I should say. I, I mean, even the first form. There's like a weird trick to that boss that t- took me two times to figure out. Um, and then um, the the massive version of Ursula when she goes uh, goes uh, full sea witch. Uh, like I, that was really difficult. Like not like uh, don't get me wrong. It's this isn't a from software game, but like it was a it required rigor to get through. And then you go to Neverland versus Captain Hook, and Captain Hook is an absolute pushover. It, it just feels like this game is weirdly balanced in terms of. Like where you are in the game, and I, I'm sure that that's that's possibly affected by the um, the leveling system that you were refer- referring to, Ryan, a little bit. But yeah, it just it feels odd that the the boss fights just are all over the place in terms of difficulty. Yeah, I find that they're either like they're either HP sinks, right, where they're just tanks that that you don't really have to think about too much. I, I'm specifically thinking about the Behemoth boss fight. He's kind of like the he's got the he's, he looks a little bit like Cerberus, but he's got one head with a spike on his head. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, uh, he kind of stomps around, and 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 those fights are like HP sinks, but they're not difficult at all. But that Ursula fight, like the one you're referring to, is just like. It's just brutal. The lightning bolt she's shooting out at you with those little she does those bubble attacks. She tries to suck you in kind of like Andros from Star Fox 64. Like it's that that fight is difficult for. And I and I don't I, I don't necessarily think it's um it's be it's a level base as much as it's just kind of design base because you have to go utilize the menu system to do things like use items and heal. So like when you when she's just spamming attacks at you like that, sometimes you just are trying to fire off your cure spell and you have to hit the shortcut button and hit the spell and then the spell actually needs to conduct through the animation in order for you to be cured. And it's um yeah, those fights can be really difficult. And and the the roller coaster ride of that is is pretty severe. And then like you said, some other fights like the the deep jungle uh, boss fights are, are really or Agrabah like I mean like even even the giant Jafar genie and all that stuff like it's not those weren't that difficult um, yeah, the, and the, the giant Jafar genie you know is meant to be an all-powerful being and I could pretty yeah. much go through that entire fight ignoring whatever Jafar was doing and, and exactly not really yeah. having to consider what what attacks are coming my way at all yeah, I had I had a, a lot of trouble with Ursula. Um, that was one of the in this in this latest playthrough that I did. Um, that was kind of the point at which I had to stop and go do some leveling off stream to get myself into a better place because I just wasn't there. And you know there are, there are some optional things. There actually there's a lot of optional things that you can do that we'll that we'll talk about here shortly. But even if you do some of that, that you're not guaranteed to be in the best place and grinding for levels is never particularly fun in my opinion uh that's something i've never especially enjoyed now it's something i can put up with if i just need to you know put on music that is not under the sea for the 30,000th time and run around between rooms i can do that but it it, i I don't know i guess the older i get the more it feels a little bit disrespectful of my time and um Uh i don't i don't think that kingdom hearts is especially bad for that as a jrpg it's actually relatively short if you don't go all in on some of the more difficult optional bosses our playthrough uh, this this past time was uh, like 26 27 hours it was it was definitely below 30 so you know that's and, and for a jrpg and a square jrpg at that that's not 
very long. So yeah. I guess it just depends on what you're looking for and and how willing you are to go do additional stuff to get yourself through the main storyline in a, a bit of an easier fashion. Though I remember having a lot of difficulty with uh, some of the end game bosses, I think in particular when you have to fight the devil. Um, I think that one was oh, a little God, bit more yeah. of like a like a level check more than anything like mm-hmm. if you hadn't leveled up enough throughout the game to that point then you're going to have a lot of trouble with him but uh throughout the game like the points that i found the most difficult were more like navigational throughout the levels like there's a lot of you know people talk a lot about monster of the whale being a bit of a blind maze in a way uh, because mm-hmm. all of the all of the rooms kind of look the same and it's kind of hard to get to anywhere and hard to kind of build a mental map. I, I found kind of the same thing with Tarzan's world, but yeah, there's a lot of instances that I remember of being stuck in a world for a very long time because I, you know, couldn't find a right object that was hidden behind a box in a corner in a part of the world that I had never ventured to before. And you know, I didn't know that there was a entire room that I wasn't accessing at that point yet. And it's just, you know, it's things like that that are just kind of like little annoyances rather than like parts where I feel my skills failing me. Important note there. Um, you mentioned building a mental map. There is no map in this game. Um, there's an overworld map that tells you which planet you're on. But once you get into there, you there's nothing. There's no mini map. There's no there's no uh, big map. You, you just have to figure it out, which is tough for me. I like a map. Um, so yeah, there there were definitely some some navigational challenges as well. So uh, we talked a lot about some of the worlds that we went to. Um, meanwhile, in in Maleficent Land, i.e., uh, Paulo Bastion, uh, there are plot things happening. We find out that there are seven princesses of heart that Maleficent is collecting, and uh, this is somehow going to open Kingdom Hearts, which is an actual physical place that uh, we don't we don't really see until the end of the game when we kind of do. But also we find out that the Disney people are not the true end bosses here in grand square Enix fashion. There is also one final boss that you don't really have much of a connection to until you have to get up in his grill and, uh, and smash away at the, uh, at his, weird mutant form and also he's got like all of the abs and is a ship i think and um yeah there's there's a lot going on with the final boss and i'll ask i'll ask in just a moment how we feel about kind of where that ended up but well, he's um, got a v-neck skin suit that goes right down to his crotch so i'm in i'm just does, letting you know that fact, right there. yes yeah. um i'm having one of those custom made there is a <laughs> uh there is a plot uh beat where we find out that Kyrie, who is uh, sora's uh, erstwhile love interest in the beginning of the game and who he has been using kind of as his motivation this entire time she is the final princess and we don't quite know what that means yet we don't know why she's a princess and she's not you know literally every other princess is a disney female they're not all literal princesses we also have alice from alice in wonderland we also have Belle, who is not technically a princess uh but then you have you know cinderella and snow white and you, you've got um 
a, a number of characters here who you will recognize. And then there's just Kyrie, who until now we have not seen in the Disney pantheon. We didn't know she's a princess. She didn't know she's a princess, but apparently she is. Uh, and therefore she is kind of the, the key to finishing all of the rest of this. Well, first let me, let me pause there and, and take a breather and see if we've got any comments or questions on Kyrie being a princess of heart and Maleficent opening Kingdom Hearts. What is Kingdom? Like, I would have perfectly been pleased with Kingdom Hearts not being a physical place. How do you guys feel about that? And do you have anything uh, at at the moment before we talk about um, Sora and his heartless stuff? It's funny because for the majority of this game, I, I was thinking, wow, the plot is pretty tame. You know, this series has a reputation for being a little bit OTT uh, when it comes to the lore and the story stuff, whereas, like, the story so far, up until this point, has been very, like, stock standard video games. Very like, go, go find your friends. Go, you go. go find your friends, go to these worlds, make sure they're fine, blah, blah, blah. Right, here we go. It's like they saved all of the true Kingdom Hearts soul for the very end of this game because they they just bombard you with all this detail, all this information. Kyrie, yeah, I'm not, I'm not bothered about her being a princess. Fine, like go for it. Like, I suppose their world is a world like any other, so it makes sense that they fit into the tapestry of everything else that's going on. But all the stuff with Ansem really bothers me i appreciate like you're getting these ansom like diary entries all the way all the way through the game and if if you're the kind of player who can be bothered to read that kind of stuff then i'm sure you saw this coming i am very much the kind of person that unless your game is made by cd project red or bioware i'm not reading your uh, your journal entries so this kind of just uh, tell a lie. It's not like it came out of nowhere. I I know who Ansem was. I I was expecting Ansem to show up, but in terms of my experience of playing this game, Ansem feels like uh, he comes out of nowhere, um, and just takes over from Male- Maleficent completely. And what a downgrade, uh, frankly. Like Ansem is so boring and so dull, and the voice actor is competent. Like. They're doing a good enough job, but there's none of that vocal identity, that vocal personality that all of the Disney villains have. It just feels like we've traded like an iconic villain, a a a villain that you are always going to remember in the form of Mane- uh, Maleficent for this very like discount Sephiroth, at, you know, at the Dollar Tree store or what have you. Like it, it just I really don't like this turn. I really, I do think this ending is kind of a sign of the bad things to come later on in the series. Uh, so after we find out that Kyrie is the princess of heart that they have been searching for, Sora takes his keyblade because he has found out through uh, the exposition that we get here and also through some flashbacks to when they were kind of blown off the island and Kyrie sort of just phased through him, sort of. 
they find out that Kyrie's heart is now trapped in Sora's body. So she cannot serve as the last princess of heart with this happening. And also she's never going to wake up from her kind of current zombie-like state. Uh, so Sora takes his keyblade, stabs himself in the chest, which frees her heart, but it also frees his. So we didn't really talk about the concept of heartless plus nobodies, um, but basically... Uh, the the simple version here, haha, simple and clean version here, is that um, if a complete person is made up of two parts, there is a heartless, which is the kind of form without the heart, and then there is a nobody, which is the um, kind of the other side of of that equation. And when you put them both together, they equal one whole person. Well, Sora is now separated, so Sora's consciousness is without his heart because it's been released, and he turns into one of those little black enemies that you have been fighting since the beginning of the game. Uh, He is a shadow, and you go through a portion of the game. It's a pretty quick portion, but a, a it's more than just a cutscene. You you do actually have a little bit of gameplay as this shadow. At that time, Kyrie comes back. Now that her heart has been freed, she is a whole person again. And she somehow, to my mind, there is no explanation for how she really recognizes that this shadow is Sora or how she's able to just kind of bamf him back to his old self. But she does both of these things. She finds that this is Sora. She changes him back. And now we're all together in one big happy everybody is is uh, a whole person again group. So that's probably the the big weird of of the game, in my opinion. Um, any any additional uh, questions about this? Comments about this? Okay. Yeah, that's, that's. I think it explains itself. Um, <laughs> no. Yeah, it's 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 kind of the start of that rabbit hole of what um, Josh was referring to. Um, I think Ryan did too earlier of of like what goes awry with the Kingdom Hearts lore as a whole. So I can't put myself in the place of the designers and the story creators and everything, but they kind of set up this unsolvable problem in this game where you start working in these metaphysical darkness forces nobody's heartless and and things are already convoluted and the only way that anime knows how to deal with convoluted and uh confusing is to not really explain anything fully just kind of let it be confusing for confusing sake and i think kingdom hearts suffers from the trying to over explain some of these things i mean by the time we got to kingdom hearts 3 they released like a six-part youtube series about the story so far and it was like an hour and a half and after you watch all of it you're still like what is even going on um and i think this is just kind of the precursor or maybe like the, the first steps down that road I still really enjoy Kingdom Hearts, but but it's this aspect of the Kingdom Hearts story that that starts to lose me. And I'm someone who is very much willing to go along with that ride. You know what I mean? I kind of love this in a way, but I will say (laughs) that I don't feel like I ever fully understand what's going on in a Kingdom Hearts game. And I don't that doesn't upset me necessarily. But if you're the type of person who really wants to have a flowchart and have everything figured out, then you are in for some work, I think. And and that is not necessarily a bad thing. I think I think we this is a game that is it's not impossible to understand. Yeah, like, you know, you can you can look at a sheet of paper that has the plot of Kingdom Hearts one on it and go, okay, yes, this makes sense. I get it in theory, at least. But also at the same time, there's a lot here that maybe didn't have to be quite as twisty as it ended up being. So 
once we have uh, Sora back to himself, Kyrie with her heart in her body, and as a whole conscious person for once in her life, I don't think Kyrie comes off very well in this game, uh, we go to the end of the world, which is kind of a place, uh, capital end, capital world. Uh, it's a place where kind of all the remnants of the worlds that are sort of collapsing or falling apart a little bit, these remnants are all kind of drawn together and leading up to Kingdom Hearts. Uh, so you go through this um, kind of collection of worlds. You go through uh, a couple of like mini locations uh, that are themed after the worlds you've already been through. And then you have your big bad boss fight with Ansem at the end. Then Ansem opens up Kingdom Hearts because he thinks that it's just going to be darkness and he really is into darkness. He wants darkness to be everywhere because he thinks that's the natural order of things. But what he finds when he opens the door is light. Kingdom Hearts shoots out light. Ansem is defeated for now. And we find... Riku. I'm not real sure how Riku got there. Riku was formerly possessed uh, by Ansem uh, through kind of the actions of Maleficent. Now Riku is in there fighting the shadows away with Mickey Mouse, who is not wearing a shirt for some reason, uh, but who is... Uh, who is kind of the big hero moment goes to Mickey, who is is fighting off all of these enemies and uh, and shutting the door with him and Riku inside of it so that uh, the outside world will be safe. Yeah, I, I mean, I'm not going to lie. At the end of this, Mickey Mouse showing up when we've been hearing this entire time how cool he is and what a great Keyblade Master he is and how the king, he's the king and how he's going to fix everything. It was kind of a cool moment. And uh, I... I kind of dill fist pump there it's it's your boy mickey um yeah uh, did, did this work on you guys like it worked on me uh it did work on me I, I like that silhouette moment with um with mickey i think that that works quite well like brian and um ryan said previously the way they they frame and show characters in this game regardless like i think you know, the environments can look a little bit bland, but the characters themselves always look amazing, always look great. And I, I did appreciate the reverence that uh, Mickey was given in that moment. I do I do find it really interesting, though, that they are so clearly setting up a sequel. Like, I feel it's really brave, given that this is like a first outing. And right. th at this time, they had they had really no idea how this is going to go. Maybe Kingdom Hearts flops, right? They are so brazenly brazenly setting up a sequel with this ending and how things wrap up with uh, Riku and, and Mickey being trapped on the other side. And and you know later on, I know you haven't set, mentioned this already, um, uh, Leah, but Ky Kyrie once once things are resolved, Kyrie and Sora get separated again, and and it's like, yeah, right, we have to reunite everyone. That's our that's our next adventure. I found that like a sl a slightly weird note to end on. Like uh, I, I yeah, I, I was. I was kind of hoping there would be some kind of resolution, there would be some kind of closure, but it kind of just ends on this isn't complete, this story isn't over yet, see you next time, which was slightly odd. Yeah, for sure. I, I think um, 
you said that they were they were counting on a sequel and absolutely yes uh i i maybe this was a go big or go home moment like yeah. if mm-hmm. if this if this flopped hard then it was going to flop the hardest because they really put everything <laughs> they had into it which i mean worked out for them we're still talking about it 20 years later but uh mm. yeah it's uh it is kind of wild that it it's not quite a cliffhanger but it has some things that were left dangling i i will say some threads that perhaps did not yeah, get I woven mean, inappropriately. I mean, the game literally ends with them walking in hundred or well, it, not even hundred acre wood, is it? It's just that I don't think grassy so. path. I, I don't yeah, know where it, it is. It looks similar, and they literally like all run off laughing together, like following Pluto, like just kind of like that sign that this is they're going to continue on together as a group. And yeah, I guess um, I was really shocked as a fan that the second Kingdom Hearts came so swiftly after this. It was still later. But uh, like uh, a few years later, but it didn't like I guess I just wasn't expecting that it felt like more of a one off like as a whole all the way through. And then now, of course, we know that there's been however many games in the series and and all this lore and everything else. But yeah, again, pretty ballsy, I would say, to uh, to kind of double down and be like, yeah, we made this and we think that we have something else going here. And we're basically just going to insinuate that another one of these is coming and it wouldn't be the first time a game ended on a cliffhangery thing and didn't come out with a sequel but it seems like they were definitely putting all their chips on the uh, basically on the side of this is going to continue on in some way shape or form so i want to talk about the uh character design a little bit we've already talked quite a bit about the um both the visual and audio design of the game but uh, specifically the characters is what i'm interested about here and uh in particular the enemy design uh i'm going to start this off with a post from Raisin B-Man on the forum who says, keeping on the theme of the Heartless, the enemy introduction is pretty smart. The first enemy you fight, Shadows, are easy, but the second enemy will turn invincible and counterattack no matter what if you're mashing. And from there, the wrinkles continue with large bodies and the like. But as much as I love some of the enemies, the game starts to crumble under its own combat system. You eventually get Guard early and Combo Master, final mix pretty late, that alleviate some of these issues, but there's some serious frustrations with Sora not having the tools to dispatch the Heartless. Enemies disappearing slash being just out of reach, bosses later on that don't leave any time for you to strike or immediately counter. Bosses also have multiple targeting points, something I enjoy from Chrono Trigger and Paper Mario. Well, they do until they don't late in the game. So, uh, yeah, this is a, a bit of a combination of how we find the enemies uh, as well as how kind of they appear to us. So I am interested in hearing what you guys think about whether kind of the generic enemies, and by that I mean the ones who are not already existing Disney uh, villains, how do those fit in uh, with the rest of the game? And is it satisfactory that they are kind of the same enemy in a lot of cases, just with a different kind of basic skin on? Or, or do you feel that that was, that was how they came out? I think the biggest lesson that I take away from Kingdom Hearts is how much the square, soft art style and, um, you know, they have some incredible artists over there, some incredible kind of conceptual artists as well that are creating you're just kind of in wonderful, timeless monsters and characters of all different varieties. But, you know, the thing that the Final Fantasy series over the years had kind of lacked is a sense of kind of inherent coherency or cohesion to like a to like a singular vision. Not that it necessarily needs it, but, you know, I, I think about something like Dragon Quest, you know, that does feel like it has like a really strong kind of visual core kind of running through it all. You know, with Kingdom Hearts, they uh, partnered with Disney 
you know, all of these talented artists and conceptual artists had to had to kind of work within a little bit more of a tighter parameter. They had to do something that would feel right in a Disney animated setting. And so, you know, they a lot of the original characters, you know, with um not only the Heartless, but also with, you know, Sora and Kyrie are all kind of drawn with Disney-like proportions and, you know, with a nice mix of Final Fantasy and Disney aesthetical details that go into them. It just turned out to be such like a smart pairing. Yeah, I, I just feel like it just kind of that that interesting mixture of the Western and Eastern animation backgrounds and the the challenge of kind of sticking to like a Disney style and kind of forcing these artists to operate within a different realm than possibly they're used to led to some really strong designs all across the board. It led to a lot of kind of visual cohesion for the series, even as the even as the base properties that they worked with started to diverge pretty wildly, you know, Pirates of the Caribbean and, um, you know, a lot of the uh, Tron and stuff that that does feel very, very, very different than the more traditional animated fare that they went with with this first game. Deadpool Negative from the forum says the integration of the Disney characters and the Square Enix characters worked better than I ever expected. Traverse Town feels influenced design-wise by both Disney and the Square Enix JRPGs, and Sora represents every little kid who's ever wanted to hang out with Donald Duck and Goofy and go on an adventure. Granted, I doubt most kids would prefer the fate of all creation hanging in the balance, but your mileage may vary. It was neat to see Squall Leonhart, voiced by David Boreanaz, as Angel was one of my favorite TV shows at the time, and Mandy Moore as Aerith. An interesting side note, this is the only time Moore would voice a character for the series. When Kingdom Hearts incorporated the world of Tangled in the third game, Moore, who played Rapunzel, was conspicuously absent, even though her Tangled co-star Zachary Levi did voice work for the game. Both Moore and Levi did voice work for the Rapunzel's uh, Tangled Adventure TV series. Is there a Mandy Moore slash Square Enix conflict? Probably not, but it's a funny idea. I thought that was a neat little tidbit. They actually pulled in some, uh, even where the uh, the voice actors were not directly tied to Disney, they have some recognizable names, uh, especially for the time period in the cast. Uh, the main cast of Sora, Riku, and Kairi were voiced by Haley Joel Osment, probably known at that point best as the Sixth Sense Kid, I would imagine. Uh, Riku uh, is voiced by David Gallagher and Kairi uh, by Hayden Panettiere, and of course, uh, Ansem, as we previously mentioned, by Billy Zane, a couple of other notables, and there are a ton. It, look up the voice cast if, if any of these sound interesting, because it's there's a lot. Uh, but Squall, who is who goes by Leon in this game, uh, it's voiced by David Boreanaz and Aerith by Mandy Moore, as we uh, heard in that previous correspondence. Uh, and Sephiroth, voiced by uh, Lance Bass of NSYNC fame. So, uh, yeah, there's there's some some interesting choices here. And I did not find that there were really any especially bad choices for the the voice cast some of them might not have been quite as strong as others but i'm curious to hear what you guys thought were there any that you thought stood out either uh in a good way or a bad way i think the the vocal performance for captain hook really stands out to me just because mm. it sounds so close to the original mm. performance it can't be the original actor i just given the the Don't time frame so 
Wendy was though, so I uh, don't yeah, know for sure. But that that makes sense to me given the age of the 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 the, um, the actress. But uh, the actor who plays Captain Hook must must have passed away by the time this game came out. But it's just so well observed, like the vocal tics, the the very specific kind of way that the, the lines are delivered. It's so so good. I mean, I think throughout the series, Haley Joel Osment just. Uh, Real treasure. Yeah, he's still Sora. After 20 years, he is still doing this voice. And I, I'm pleased with him. I think he's I think he does a great job personally. Yeah, just uh so much uh so much love for the character and then growing up with the character as well. And you know, as his yeah, you know, voice has changed from being a little kid to a fully grown man now. And uh yeah, it still just kind of gives it his all. You could tell there's a lot of uh a lot of passion that's going into that performance. All right, uh, let's move on to the music. Now, uh, the reason that I say I'm going to let Brian go off on it is because we've had some conversations about Yoko Shimomura recently. Uh, We've mentioned uh, the music a couple of times previously, but uh, I wanted to give you the space. So if you would if you would like to lead us (laughs) off uh, and tell us how you like the music in Kingdom Hearts. Yeah, I think it's I think it's unbelievable. Um, and I'm going to be very brief, um, just because I, I could talk about Yoko Shimomura for days. And, and I just think that it's it's almost criminal how when we talk about the legends of video game music and, and the, the first names that come to people's mind are, um, you know, Nobuo Uyamatsu and Koji Kondu. And that and that's well earned from them, obviously. I'm not I'm not belittling their work, but um, Yoko Shimomura it should be on the Mount Rushmore of video game music composers. I mean, we're talking about the the woman who who did the score for Street Fighter 2 and Super Mario RPG and she just and countless others. She's just. She's just so prolific and so incredible, and her, her range is 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 awesome. And I think that's completely on display here. Um, she did uh, all the arrangements herself from the original Disney music. She also the amount of original tunes she had to write for this game was kind of astronomical when you consider the varying environments and how this is a game built on essentially going from world to world to world. Uh, it just leads to a lot of necessary um, environmental music themes that need to be hooky and also themes that need to play in the background and not be bothersome. And, and, and I just think that as a whole across the series, Kingdom Hearts has some of the widest range of quality video game music that you'll find from any series. And I just, um, I find myself going back and, and listen to it. Is that all to the say time. the widest range of high quality video game music or the widest range of quality of video game music? Uh, yes no um high quality video game music um yeah no i just think i I just think the range that's on display with this soundtrack in particular is is unique and special in a way that i think only bolsters my opinion of her as a composer uh, as a whole i just think it's i just think it's fantastic yeah i i think that that there are some like real standout like kind of best in video gaming pieces that are written for this game and for this series. Um, but uh, I, I think it's a little bit less consistent than later games are. Um, I think some of that world music we've talked about earlier is a bit hit and miss. Um, I think, uh, you know, the um, Alice in Wonderland uh, music, I can kind of recall it from memory at any time. And I wish I couldn't do that. Uh, a couple of those, a couple of those kind of looping ditties are short and not very, dynamic and kind of considering that this came you know years after so much incredible like dynamic you know constantly kind of like changing and adaptive music from like uh, grant kirkhope's 
Banjo Kazooie and Donkey Kong 64 scores. Like, I think there is some of the background music that doesn't quite like live up to like this point in history of game music. But I mean, you can't really touch on some of the series and some of the game's highs as well. Like, it's it's really there's some super impressive stuff in here and then even like some of the incidental stuff like i have a lot of affection for the traverse town background music and um even some of the ones that are more kind of simple uh like that really do um really do shine through so you know obviously very very talented composer and um some really incredible work here but i don't know if it's all home runs across the board (laughs) That I want to talk about kind of the controls and the gameplay uh, just to uh, get in a couple of more pieces of correspondence and to see if we have any uh, further more detailed thoughts on it than what we've already mentioned. I'm going to lead us off with a couple of pieces from the forum. This one from Seth, who says the battle gameplay was fun and frantic at the time of release, but in retrospect, it definitely lacks nuance. While there are tricks and tactics you need to use for some of the later boss fights, you can get through most of the game with button mashing attacks and dodge rolls. I raced through the final mix version a couple of years ago as part of a series replay to build up to the third entry, and I was reminded of how clumsy the menu system is, especially when looking for the one spell you need for that moment. And I relearned very quickly to not give your useless teammates any items, as Donald and Goofy are sure that money grows on trees in this world. Yeah, I agreed with that. That's very... Don't give Very them anything true. good. <laughs> Potions? Yeah, okay, sure. Do not give them elixirs. They yeah, will waste you them. You use one spell and Donald <laughs> spams all the elixirs Whoa. from his inventory. Then, yeah. Uh, and um, follow that up with a post from Wu King Long, who says, Kingdom Hearts was a game I only got to play at friends' houses on occasion as I did not have a PS2 at home. I really liked the combat. It was what I had always hoped to see from an RPG with full-on real-time attacking and blocking, tied to all the typical under-the-hood numbers getting bigger you would expect from the genre. However, I dismissed seriously getting into the series because Disney was too kitty for my mature middle school sensibilities. Seeing Kingdom Hearts 2 at a friend's house in high school made me realize I needed to play the series immediately, so I picked up a copy of the original PS2 release and got cracking. The game is rough around the edge but has an identity wholly unique to all the following entries. The platforming is dreadful, and the story, while a bit more coherent than the mess it became in the future, is just absolute nonsense much of the time. This doesn't matter, though, because bashing enemies with your massive steel cylinder you call a blade is just so satisfying. I may prefer the combat in certain later entries more, but this is where it all started. I just wish more action RPGs would aspire to -to moment-to-moment combat that feels this good. So I guess there's really two questions here. Uh... How did we feel about the combat and how did we feel about the platforming, which I think I would like to condense into one uh, kind of gen- general uh, prompt here, which is going to be how did you guys feel about the way the game plays? Did it feel good to play? It depends entirely on what you're doing and the context of the situation. Ooh. In the early parts of the game, the platforming is particularly frustrating so so there's this um uh thing that designers implement in platformers called coyote time which is basically like they give you a little bit of leeway when you jump off of a platform that if you've actually kind of fallen off it still counts as a jump from what i can tell there's just no coyote time in kingdom hearts whatsoever like if you are off the platform you are falling like there's just there's no leeway given to the player whatsoever and that's just something we're not used to as modern players we're used to get like and i'm almost 100 percent sure later kingdom hearts 
um, implement this. Like they they implement this little bit of leeway so so that if you you're technically off the platform, it still counts as a jump. So this absolute precision required it was something that you really got you had to get a handle on in the early stages before they introduce the glide, which pretty much negates the need need for that kind of precision. The combat. For the most part, I, I, I did actually enjoy the feel of, even if it did lack the nuance. But I absolutely couldn't stand how much Heartless spawned in when you were just trying to explore the environment or just mm. trying to open a chest or any like literally do anything else but engage with the combat. Like, there's several points where it felt like Right, I've cleared the area. Okay, good. Right, I'm going to do... Oh, no, there's more. There's more of them. And it just got to the point where, like, especially towards the end and and in Hollow Bastion in particular, I would just skip encounters. I would just run past them because I just couldn't be bothered to... You know, especially towards the end where the enemies get a little bit meatier, they actually require some rigor to get through. I just couldn't be bothered to repeat the same encounter over and over again. And I kind of wish, like, the the game trusted that I wasn't going to get bored to just let me be in the spaces a bit more because... I don't think the combat is robust enough to deal with the frequency in which the game throws it at you. It's fine earlier on when the environments are a little less complicated and, and require a little less of you in terms of navigation and and puzzle solving, but it became a bit of a barrier as the game went on. I think we've talked a lot about the platforming already. My opinions have kind of been known there, but when it comes to combat, I think it's very well animated it looks great and in that sense it's really fun to it is really fun to throw out attacks and to to watch these really good animations play out but uh i think that the combat kind of lacks impact in a way especially for as like soft and squishy as all of these enemies look like it would be fun if there was a little bit more kind of like feeling of impact of your uh of your, you know, big heavy blade hitting these little squishy creatures. Something I'm curious about uh, is, did any of you or have any of you played as a more magic-based character? No, I'm definitely a bash em up with my Keyblade character. Um, I also, like, um, I, f- I don't know if it really matters or not, because sometimes I, I really only use magic early on for attack, like for some, and specifically the enemies were in the air, but then later on your air combos just get like crazy. You can do like 12 hits before hitting the ground. So, um, and then, you know, the only magic I'm really using consistently is cure anyway. So, so yeah, I never really played as a magic character. I, I agree with the things that uh, Ryan and Josh said about the kind of the floatiness and like the lack of impact, but, but I really, by the end of that game, you're moving so fast and you're covering so much ground with your attacks and you're soaring through the air and like you have those that cool kind of sword slide attack where you cover about 10 feet on the ground and like and and close the gap between enemies and um by the end i think the combat combat is really fun and engaging um i think maybe it does it is a bit of a slow start to get there but but in general i i really like the way it feels by the end but i think the criticisms about the kind of lack of consequence or lack of um you know collision almost uh, in the combat is fair i just i don't know it, it works for me Raisin B Man says, I don't think the platforming is bad because it's not a platformer. That, combined with the fact that Sora can grip edges, usually makes up for that. 
Obviously, he's not Mario Odyssey Mario or Meat Boy, and there's very few times where absolute precision is the difference between you moving to the next cutscene or a game over screen. His movement definitely is clunky, and I can see why Tarzan's world would be a turnoff for some people, but there's only a handful of times, one treasure chest I can think of off the top of my head, where you need more than Sora can give in terms of platforming. But in general, it's interesting to see how much movement Sora has, as it seems like the more fluid and developed movements we got for him in Kingdom Hearts 2 and beyond, which eventually turned into the free flow system, if I recall correctly, were planned and thought about, even if they weren't implemented well here. I will say the decision to let you fall off of stages, looking at you, Hollow Bastion, is definitely the wrong one. I don't think that sort of thing ever returned, so they probably thought so as well. There are, of course, other pieces of uh, gameplay that we do run into that are not simply combat-based or traversal-based, which... I would like to talk about in the form of the gummy ship, because it's a thing that most people (laughs) seem to really dislike uh, and I get a real kick out of. So um, I'm going to I'm going to rattle through a couple of uh, complaints, mostly from the forum. Uh, And uh, this one from Patreon, uh, Pecan Pie says, One final thought. The gummy ship stuff is truly terrible. I kept waiting for it to evolve or indicate what I was supposed to do with the pickups and the levels. Granted, I only spent five minutes in the design module before I got confused and gave up, so I assume there's more there. But the levels I had to complete required nothing beyond the base build, thankfully, so I had no motivation to engage in any modifications. Also, the visuals on the gummy ship levels are mind-blowing in that they are blank and chaotic at the same time, a rainbow vomit of random polygons. Uh, Seth from the forum says, For me, the biggest misstep in Kingdom Hearts is the gummy ship sections. I really don't know what they were thinking with these, but if they were going to be forced on us, why was there no effort to actually make them good? Japan has an incredibly rich history of shoot-em-ups, and these parts of the game feel like none of them and lack any fun. Deadpool Negative, with a slightly more positive reaction, says, I will speak up in slight defense of the gummy ship. The idea of shooter segments breaking up travel between worlds isn't too bad, actually, and the first couple times it's actually quite fun. However, there's not much challenge or variety to it, and although you can acquire tons of parts to customize your own ship, all you really need to do is put on a gun placement you like, and voila, you're set for the entire game. I got super into customizing uh, the gummy ship that we used for the game because you can do some really ridiculous things with that gummy ship. And to me, yes, you can. (laughs) It felt like it felt like really just kind of going all in on that stuff met up with the ridiculousness of some of the plot and design elements in a way that it really just felt right to me. Uh, did anybody other than me do anything else with the gummy ships or uh, or were you all just kind of on the I'll go what I, where I need to go and that's it tip? Well, I, I'm kind of in the middle. I did engage with the gummy ship editor, but only in as much as creating a wall of guns. Um, <laughs> so all right. I just I just create just all the bricks I needed to increase my health. And then all of the guns that I was allowed to have at that point <laughs> in the game. It's very, very easy to make those sections just a complete walk in the park. Like, if, if you're just, like, because you get to a point where you're firing bullets in all directions at all times, and you've got, like, these laser cannons that you can fire for particularly, you know, heavy duty enemies, you just destroy everything. So I I I'm not I'm not quite sure what people mean by these sections being terrible. 
just because there's not enough friction for it to kind of come off as either good or bad for me. Like it, it's just kind of there and it exists. And I and I do actually appreciate you know the pacing shift. Yeah, they're just not like w- once you've upgraded the gummy ship in a particular way, there's just no challenge whatsoever. It's just it's just. Uh, lambs to the slaughter at a certain point just the number of heartless that die in those gummy ship sections <laughs> actually makes me feel something for the heartless in a way that the base enemies don't because it's just like the faceless victims of war um <laughs> so you're a little death star yeah, yeah as they just come against my 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 war machine they're fine they're fine it's okay I never engaged with them at all until until the stream and watching you do it, Leah. I, I am very happy to be an observer to yeah. you enjoying and 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 uh, and interacting with it. But I never personally got anything out of those. I just kind of saw them as a means to an end. And and once you get the warp drive, you're only doing it once anyway, and then you're just zipping all over the the galaxy. So yeah, that is something they don't make you do any of it, uh, which is pretty much the case for uh, most of the side content. Like you don't have to do really any of it. The exception there is I think that in order to get through Olympus Coliseum, you do have to do the first tournament. Maybe. You might not even have to do that. You might just have to do the thing where you hit all the barrels into other stuff, which was not my favorite thing to do. But I do like the uh, I do like the Coliseum. I think that it's kind of a neat way to get yourself some levels and have a variety of enemies in a relatively confined and not safe space but a a space that is not it doesn't require you doing a whole lot of maneuvering around the environment in order to just do the combat uh so yeah there's aside from gummy ships there is uh as i mentioned the olympus coliseum there are uh 101 dalmatians out there most of them puppies in treasure chests and the like um there better be holes poked in those treasure chests and like little dishes of water in there or else i'm very concerned i hope so i mean it is disney so like maybe it's something like mary poppins bag where like you know they they just (laughs) there's just a room for the puppies inside the box uh i i hope so anyway because that could be really unpleasant uh there are trinity marks which are unlocked uh at various points through the story. Again, some of them are necessary to advance, but a lot of them are uh, just kind of little marks in the environment that you find and activate. And as long as your party has the correct skill, has has reached the point in the story where the correct skill has been obtained, you usually get some kind of item or you open up access to a new spot in the environment, uh, something like that. Usually it's items or treasure chests. Uh, I think one of them even gives you puppies. So they're stacking, <laughs> they're stacking things on top of things there. This is all documented in Jiminy's journal. So uh, pretty early on in the game, Jiminy Cricket finds you and says, hey, my world got screwed up too. Can I come with you and just write in my diary about you? Uh, And then he does. And so that's kind of where you have your... um, your records. Uh, I used that a lot when I was going through to locate all of the Dalmatians because it will tell you where which worlds have Dalmatians left. Uh, and um, some of them are not covered correctly in the official strategy guide that I have from 2002 because it's a different version of the game. So uh, yeah, that, that helped as well. And of course, there's some secret bosses. It is a square game. After all, there is the Phantom who shows up in Neverland after you have completed it. There is a 
kind of robot creature desert thing called Kurt Ziza, uh, who was named after a contest winner prior to the North American release of the game. Uh, and there's Sephiroth. Sephiroth is in this game, and he's a real son of a mother. He's <laughs> the um, he, he's not the final actually. Uh, fight that you can get to in the Colosseum. There is one more. Uh, I think it's the Ice Titan. Or maybe it's the Stone Titan. I don't know. It's one of the Titans uh, is after Sephiroth. But Sephiroth is really, really hard. Uh, brutally so. And I have managed to defeat him, I think, once. And that was with a very, very leveled up character. Uh, because he can kind of just one-shot you unless you have a particular ability that keeps him from doing that. So, um Yeah. But if you are looking for a special challenge, you can get that in this game. Nupraptor from the forum says, I still remember how electrifying it was the first time I got to the Colosseum Platinum match. Your adversary beams in and one-winged angel starts playing. I only ever beat him after leveling up and hunting down the elusive rare truffles to be able to make the Ultima weapon. Uh, and then there's another boss that was not in the original release of Kingdom Hearts 1 on the PS2, but was in the final mix version and thus in the re-releases called The Unknown, who is a character that you uh, can run into in Hollow Bastion, who uh, you they never actually say who he is in game. Uh, so I won't say anything about it here, but it is a character that you later find out kind of who it is uh, in in future games so something that they kind of put in after the fact so uh, did you guys engage with much of the uh we already talked about the gummy ships obviously but uh, engage in much of the optional content uh is it something you do every time you give it a play or this time or uh how, how do you feel about that my my first time through the game, I, I definitely did. I kind of I kind of rang it out for everything I could. It was also of a time, and I'm not trying to be old man talking about video <laughs> games, but uh, where I wasn't I was in college and I didn't have a lot of money, so I didn't buy a lot of video games. I rented a bunch, but um, uh, back when that was a thing, but um, but yeah, so I I kind of played everything to exhaustion back then. So I think my fight, I think at the beginning uh, at, with Kingdom Hearts, I. I'm pretty sure I had like a save file with 70 or 80 hours on it by the end with a fully maxed out party and had done all the things. So I have not done that since, though. I, I think I only beat Sephiroth that one time and that was pretty much it. But yeah, I, I definitely did all of that stuff, save for the new boss, the unknown. I, I don't believe I've played that. I have played through the final mix before, but I, I don't think I got to that to that level. I'll tell you that I discovered him when I was running around picking up puppies and I thought, oh, this will be good to show on a stream because I went yeah. I went in there, I took about two swings at him and immediately got my butt handed to me. So, um, <laughs> yeah. yeah, it's delightful. Uh, Ryan and Josh, anything on um, extras? Yeah, I, I did engage with the Coliseum stuff. I did not fight Sephiroth uh, because, uh, frankly... No, it's very hard. <laughs> like I, I enjoyed fighting Cloud, yeah. Uh, even though he's like a weird, like amalgamation of Vincent Valentine and Cloud, like glued together. But it was cool, like getting to fight a uh, fan favorite Final Fantasy character. I tried to find as many Dalmatians as I could, but uh, I did not find all of them. So I think about ten of them are probably dead. And um, yeah, I, I mean, I, I engaged. I engaged with as much of it as it made sense to, which I think is that's yeah. that's the ideal way. But I I wasn't going to attempt any of the more difficult boss fights, given how much I struggled with the the ones on the path. 
Yeah, I will say that I think that the first time I played it, the fact that you you can get into a fight where you're fighting Cloud and Squall at the same time probably blew my my fragile little mind. Uh, and, and I think that may have been the case for a lot of people. I still think it's pretty cool, actually. They're, they're hard, too. Everybody's hard in the, in the Coliseum. All right. So uh, to kind of wrap us up and bring us towards a close, uh, we have a few more pieces of correspondence. Uh, you can either go to canamrince.com slash forum. You can tweet at us. You can email us. You can uh, join our Patreon over at uh, patreon.com and leave feedback over there. We love feedback. Um, so there was a lot for this. And uh, I think I managed to get it a little something from most people. So uh, hopefully, uh, hopefully you enjoy. Chris Hayward from the Patreon says, The moment where everyone and everything leaves you at Hollow Bastion and the standout track of the OST kicks in is a moment that stands out to me still to this day. I've not really spent too much time with the series after the disappointing, to me, second outing, but I remember this being one of the standout games of the PS2 era to me and one of the few games that I ever 100%ed, yes, even juggling the Mushroom Heartless in Halloween Town. It did a surprisingly competent job of translating Disney Worlds into a playable 3D environment for the first time, with a strong vocal cast and a gameplay loop that, despite its obvious flaws, really dug its claws into me. Let's not talk about the platforming, though. And it was the game I happily lost a whole summer break from school to. Magical Isopod says, Kingdom Hearts is a series stained by its own legacy, that much is true. And as a result, I think a lot of people forget just how interesting and frankly great the original game is. Kingdom Hearts may be the first game I purchased new with my own money, a $30 greatest hits game. Amusingly, I remember my mom chastising me for spending that kind of money. If only she knew PS5 games are $101 after tax now. There's some emotion attached to this one for me, because I got it the same weekend our PS2 came home. It had been bought for us by our dad as an incentive for us to visit him. We used to go every other weekend, but due to the stress of his work and us growing older, we went less and less frequently. The PS2 coming home felt like our dad giving up on us in a lot of ways. And Kingdom Hearts being an emotional game about loss and camaraderie and darkness, it was timely. Kingdom Hearts is generally regarded as a very convoluted work of fiction, but the premise of the first one is actually quite simple. Your protagonist is a kid spirited away to another land where he meets weirdos from two very different corners of fiction. The juxtaposition of goofy and lighthearted Disney characters with brooding, deadly serious Final Fantasy characters was a really, really fun time, and one the series never really explored as well as it could have. The story here just feels super magical, and I love that about it. Sora searching for his friends Riku and Kairi, two people who represent very different things to him, and the paths those characters take is really similar to how we see our closest childhood pals change as they grow up. It's not a super complex premise, and it's really to the game's benefit. The theming here is super on point. Tales of mad science, of magic, of scheming baddies in the shadows. It's just really compelling pop fantasy stuff. And every time I play this game, even though I know what's going to happen, the core of the narrative is so compelling that it pushes me through an admittedly imperfect gaming experience. Overall, I really do love this game. It has its warts, to be sure, but it remains the best game in the series to me, a series that would promptly take a sharp turn into convoluted nonsense with Chain of Memories and Kingdom Hearts 2. A shame, really, because the series really had so much potential. But this series always felt like a casualty of the Squaresoft and Enix merger. The games after the original lacked the relative restraint and simplicity of the original, and that's certainly to their detriment. And then, one last note from Deadpool Negative, who says... On a personal note, while playing this game back in 2003, I was dealing with the aftermath of losing a beloved family pug who had passed away not long before I picked the game up. One of the side goals in Kingdom Hearts is finding all 101 Dalmatians and returning them to Pongo and Perdita. I found it healing, and it took a while, with the help of my trusted strategy guide, to unlock that cinematic of all those puppies safe and sound. It's always strange how games can come around at a certain time to affect you. 
In case you haven't gotten it after this rambling, I love this game. You should play this game if you haven't, and by being so long, tangential, but ultimately positive and happy, I hope I've accurately communicated the Kingdom Hearts experience. Thank you so much, everybody. It seems like there's a lot of people with really personal memories attached to this, and I'm really glad that they uh, that they shared them with us. Yeah, I was just going to say thanks for sharing those. Yeah. I, that can't be easy stuff to write, but it's um, it's um, it just makes it hit a little bit closer to home yeah. reading it. All right. So on the day of recording, we do ask for three word reviews. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at Kane and Rince. Brian, can you start us off? Oh, I'm going to do my best. Thank you. Here we go. <laughs> Magical Isopod says, Shora, it's Sheferosh. That's really good. I knew I did the right thing, <laughs> giving you that one. I apologize. <laughs> Wu King Long says, weighty key combat. Uh, Mr. Ixalite says, lightning in bottle. Seth says, Sora, Donald, Goofy. Raisin B-Man says, Sora, dinner's ready. Valentine Pillman says, Sora's poor parents. <laughs> uh, Matthew Lawrence says, fantastic, confusing start. Kim Montgomery Beginning of Infinity. Pixel Project Radio says, Heal me, Donald. The King Rocka says, Phenomenal theme song. Samtik says, Brilliant Shinomura soundtrack. Sebutsu says, Sora is love. Andy says, Adjust Allies settings. Porg of Prophecy says, Most ambitious crossover. Terra says, Really solid foundation. And Greg Levine says, Simple and clean. Nice way to wrap that up. Speaking of wrapping up, uh, I would like to hear our uh, summary thoughts here. And I think I would like to ask Ryan to start. Kingdom Hearts 1 is uh, yeah, a game that I've played more than any other in the series so far. I'm still really, really impressed when I go back to it with how how good the Disney characters look, how you know, soft the edges on the characters are. And, you know, that's not easy to achieve at this time at which um, polygons are still something that you can, you know, physically count in front of you. You know, nowadays, Kingdom Hearts 3, you know, technology has improved to such a degree that, you know, it's pretty, pretty phenomenal. But being able to squeeze like that level of cartoon fidelity a hand-drawn animation fidelity from the Disney canon out of a PlayStation 2. And, uh, you know, subsequently being able to put these games on uh, 3DS and PSP. And uh, they they did some really, really impressive stuff technologically. But there's, I mean, throughout the series, like it is something that they lean really, really hard into what I would call (laughs) the series worst instincts but they do it with such sincerity that it's hard to not get pulled into it you know even though this is the type of story especially as it gets convoluted that tends to really turn me off but the the fact that it's delivered with such sincerity and is um written with such like reverence for its own material like i can i can look past the convoluted nature i can look past the prime era of edgelord you know how it gets (laughs) but it's really like nothing else and it's the fact that it could be made in the first place is still really surprising any other director and any other developer would have gone to like really safe you know places to take the series and to make sure that they don't you know upset the multi-billion dollar overlords that they're uh, partnering with but the fact that they took such strange risks and did so many just puzzling and baffling things makes it so much more interesting of a project 
I, I kind of miss the days in which Disney took more of these risks in the video gaming space. Think back to Epic Mickey as well and how much of a departure that is from the typical mm-hmm. kind of brand um, look of Mickey Mouse and the this Disney world and their theme parks. But um, it's, uh, I don't know, I... I'm I'm really glad that it exists. It's not something that I tend to put on just to like have a have a great time with a video game, but it's uh I, I'm really glad to have played it and uh I I I uh commit to actually sitting down and playing Kingdom Hearts 2, even if that means skipping several entries in the series to get there. Right. I think you only have to skip one because 358 over two days is after technically, but it takes place in the storyline. But I you know what? Uh-huh. Um uh-huh. Th- keep going. Uh-huh. <laughs> Let me get my whiteboard. Thank you very much. Uh, Josh, how about you go next? I think Kingdom Hearts is okay. Whoa. Slow down. (laughs) Um, There are are aspects of it that I think have have aged really well. Um, Ryan's already highlighted uh, some of that. I I think that the character models look really, really good, even with, you know, with you know comparisons you could make to modern games, I think these are really appealing, charming um, you know character models. It only really shows its age when they clearly have two different face yes. models for different characters, which I think probably wasn't noticeable as much in the SD era, but is now very very noticeable. But aside from that, it, it, it's a visually appealing game. I think where where it's aged worse for me is um, gameplay. I think this is clearly Square Enix dipping its toes into more real-time, more action-driven combat, and it's something they'll, they'll get better and better at as time goes on, and, and frankly, that console generation goes on. But this, you know, this not necessarily first, but initial step in that direction feels a bit clunky, feels like it's missing a few things that some of its contemporaries would have already implemented, even in the generation preceding this this gen- the, this current generation. Yeah, and I, I just find the level design really, really lacking uh, for the most part, uh, apart from a few key areas. You know, I hope that we go on to cover the rest of the series because I think, you know, as... Wild as that plot goes, I think, you know, as a play experience, I think this this series goes from strength to strength. I think Kingdom Hearts 2 is a huge step up in both controls and level design. So I'm really eager to cover that game in future. I don't know if I can wholeheartedly recommend um, Kingdom Hearts 1 um, to anyone who hasn't played it before. I don't think there is enough friction here where it, it's massively frustrating outside of a few boss fights. So if you're interested in it as a historical document, I yeah, go ahead, check it out. But if you're after a particularly fun or, or deep gameplay experience, I think you might be better off with the sequels. That's my take. Thank you. So I think that I have in this apartment probably at least three and maybe four copies of the original Kingdom Hearts in some format or another, which I'm going to say probably does say some things about how I feel about this game. It's not perfect. It's, it's very much a product of its time. 
It has a lot of things that I don't like about it. But despite all of that, overall, I always have fun with Kingdom Hearts and I always see it as something that really puts me in a, in a good place. I, I like playing it. It's I had a heck of a time playing uh, playing it on stream with Brian. That was a great time. Uh, and again, definitely recommend that you go seek out our playthrough. Uh, it was it was a lot of fun. But um, I, yeah, I I don't know that I can really recommend anybody play it for the first time now either. But what I will say is that if you have maybe tried it before and didn't get on with it, or if you have played it before but haven't played it in a long time, I mean, maybe give it another shot. It's something that you kind of have to take with a grain of salt, I guess, um, because like I said, th there are things that have aged and we've talked about that as well. I don't know. I really admire a series that can take an idea that's on its surface, this insane, and I'm not even talking about the plot, I'm talking about the fact that Squaresoft, I almost said Square Enix again, Squaresoft and Disney did this thing together that should not have worked out at all in any capacity, and it did, and it's still sticking around, and they are still making sequels for it, and still making spinoffs, and that says something about it. That says that enough people find this important and have enough memories attached to it and enjoy it enough that they can do that. And I just think that's fascinating. I, I really, even when something is as ridiculous as, and now I am talking about the plot, uh, even when something is as ridiculous as that, they take it deadly serious and they, they, they are, they are very committed to it. And I think that that's pretty cool. Uh, so yeah, I don't, I don't, necessarily know that i would say rush out and play it but if you have access to it if you have a copy hanging around you know check under your couch cushions there might be one in there it's all over the place yeah yeah why not you know i really like kingdom hearts and i hope that we continue going with the series uh either way i'm pretty sure brian and i are going to continue streaming the series so there's that at least that's me on kingdom hearts brian i think you are at least as positive as i am if not more so uh I'm going to take a little different approach to this and I'll try to be brief, but and I'll try also to not get emotional, which will be a little weird uh, for me because I don't normally do that. But um, so uh, it's obvious I love Kingdom Hearts, despite all its flaws. We talked about it a lot. Um, and I've got a lot, of, a lot of attachment to the game for for better and for worse. But for me, what's most significant about it personally, we're talking about our personal reflections. Um, I, I agree with everything that you guys said about um, would it be something that you come to for the first time now? I don't know that I could recommend that as the best experience to have for sure. So I spent a lot of my youth, like a lot of people and especially a lot of us and, and a lot of people who are involved in the video game space, just kind of like. I don't want to say I was ashamed of my hobbies or the things I like, but like just an awkward kid, like trying to figure out who the hell I was and like and 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 what I you know and what I liked it and like being open and honest about the things I like because I did. I wanted to seem cool or not like a nerd or whatever. Like that was always something like in that grade school mentality. You, you, you struggle to find your way through it, and and that actually a lot of people find themselves when they get to college. When I got to college, I, I was kind of even worse, like trying to put on like the show or like trying to like be something that I wasn't. So. Cut to through all of that nonsense to Kingdom Hearts. I get that my sophomore year of college. And here's this thing that's presented to me. It's this wacky combination of all these things I love that is just unapologetically itself. And it has flaws and it has all these things to it that maybe aren't the best. But I just found myself grinning from ear to ear moment to moment as I played this. It's something that I'll never forget because I had this moment with this game where I'm not going to say Kingdom Hearts is life altering to me or anything, but like I just kind of started to view myself with a little bit more clarity after it because I, I realized that 
this game is, is kind of all of these things mitched into one that don't seem like they really should work together, but it still has a heart, still has personality, still has soul. And I kind of started feeling better about being the weird human puzzle piece that I am of all these pieces that didn't really seem to fit together, that don't really seem to really make sense. But still, here I am. Here I am, this person trying to live this life, trying to be all these things that I am. And I kind of just stopped like trying to not be that person, I guess. And I'm not saying it was a lot of other factor. It wasn't just that uh, it wasn't just that I heard simple and clean and dearly beloved. And I'm like, I know who I am. It wasn't any of that. It was just kind of more of a representation of where I was at that time in my life and how from that point on, I just kind of started being more me without any real like without having to feel like I had to apologize for that. Kingdom Hearts to me is obviously way more than a video game. And if you come to it now for the first time, you might get into it and be like, why am I sharing a Poo fruit? What the hell is darkness? What's a Keyblade? Like all that stuff is, is valid. But for me personally, this game is always going to have just like a permanent spot on the shelf, a permanent rotation, because playing it just makes me feel good about being me. God damn, if that isn't an endorsement for a hobby or a video game, like I don't know what is. So yeah, I um. I, I can put my critical lens onto it and I can talk about the gameplay and all that stuff. Well, when it boils down to it, Kingdom Hearts just makes me feel good. So I'm probably going to play it once or twice a year until I can't really play it anymore. So that's kind of my, my whole thoughts on it. Thank you very much. That's it for Kingdom Hearts. Uh, not for Kingdom Hearts in total, of course, but uh, for, for this episode of Kingdom Hearts. To be continued, uh, possibly to be determined if we are continuing. <laughs> uh, I guess we'll see. It just falls to me, Leah, to thank Ryan, Josh, and Brian for everything uh, in today's episode. Uh, Ryan, also thank you for editing this uh, this this big old beast. And to tell you that in next time, in issue 508, you can travel with us all the way back to 1987 as we investigate the Fool's Errand. <laughs>